So, who's next? And I asked that in the sense of, when I first heard of Sauce, I said, okay. I, you know, you see the pictures, like, man, this guy's a grown man with barrettes in his hair. But I wanted people, like, I actually looked past the cover of the book. And the more and more I dig, like, he can actually go. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, obviously he's completely independent, and he's on the business end. Like, you can't really argue with what he's got going on. But in your, in your opinion, who, who's next? I don't think that he's next. I think he, he's he's now. Agreed. You know, I think uh, I think definitely he's one of those guys that's going to be around. That's, that's going to. I don't think he's at. He's reached the top of his. Uh, oh no no no! Not at all. At all. I don't think he's reached the top of his abilities at all. The two I, that got me were Ghetto Gospel Two yeah. and Family. Yeah. I was like, okay. And then you know, I'm, I'm a big Mozzie fan, mm -hmm. and so uh, you know, the fact that he sampled Queen one is out of left field. Like nobody would expect that. Like, that's something you would do, go sample mm -hmm. something classical like that. Mm -hmm. Nobody would do that. So I was like, okay, he's on to something. So that being said, then who would you consider next, if you will? Man, that's kind of hard, man. Um, mm, that's a tough question. I think Trap Bro, well, Freddie definitely has a chance of being next. I think he, I think I think he definitely has what it takes to uh, to reach the next step for sure. What up, everybody? It's Cuff of the Vision Lab Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Farmers Insurance, the Robert Garcia Agency. If you're looking for the best insurance and customer service, make sure you pick up the phone and dial 972-645-1844. Whether it's home, life, or business insurance, Robert and his staff are the best at protecting you and your family. Once again, that's Farmers Insurance, the, the Robert, Robert Garcia, Garcia Agency. Agency. The phone number, 972-645-1844. And the website is farmersagent.com forward slash R Garcia. And don't forget to mention the Vision Lab podcast. This is Mr. Leader, Texas legend, and you listen to the Vision Lab podcast with Cuff and Mo. Welcome back to the Vision Lab podcast in partnership with Nexum Creative. I'm your host, Ryan Cuffey, alongside my co-host, Mr. Ryan Mosley. The Vision Lab is a platform focused on growth and exploring the developmental path of people's visions and dreams and how those dreams come into reality. It's all about tapping into and becoming the best versions of ourselves through self-discovery, self-examination, and self-actualization. Yo, Mo, who do we have on the show today? Today's guest is a native of Houston, Texas. He is one of the most accomplished producers in the history of rap music, having produced multiple platinum and gold albums for iconic artists such as Scarface, Slim Thug, Paul Wall, and the late Nipsey Hussle. He released his own project earlier this spring titled 20 Years of Power. Please welcome the legendary Mr. Lee to the Vision Lab podcast. What up, what up, what up? We appreciate you sitting down with us, sir. We, uh, we understand this is not a, a frequent occurrence for you. Nah. Not at all. <laughs> so let's just get to it. Um, you know, we talked about some of the things that you've done, but for, for those who are hearing your voice and actually will actually get to see the face behind the name for the first time, who is Mr. Lee? Mr. Lee is a, a son, a father, you know, an innovator, producer, a friend, part-time activist a little bit. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm pretty much a, a jack of many trades. Man. Um, 
when did you start producing? Because everyone knows that you know you got magical hands. So I'm just come right out and ask you, when did you start producing? Music? I started producing music probably like in 19, like 1992. I had some uh, school, some kids that I grew up with in school, and we had a group called 4D. And I was the producer and rapper. I was the Dr. Dre group. So you know, we I, we've been I've been playing with it for years. Since I was a kid, I've been playing piano since I was nine. So I, I played for different churches at the age of nine all the way to the age of 21. So the, the church background had a major influence in you getting involved or your foot into uh, into the music industry? Everything. Okay. And I've heard that you've been called the Dr. Dre of the South. Yeah, that's what a lot of people call me. Yeah. So what's that like? I mean, it's cool. You know what I mean? Dr. Dre is somebody that I grew up looking up to. You know what I mean? So... To even be mentioning that type of, uh, you know, what I mean, arena is cool. You know, what I mean, I think it's real cool. So, Comfort said, Dr. Dre at the South, and and obviously, you know, you've got a lot of roots in Houston. Who was the first artist to give you a shot in Houston? Man, the very, very first artist to give me a shot in Houston was a rapper named Point Blank. He's from, uh, he's a uh, part of the the South Side. You know, Southie from South Park, he gave me my first shot on his album when I first got to Houston. How did so, that happen? I had uh, met a guy that was a journalist that knew some people at Big Time Records, which was the company that had Pimp C and Bond signed, and they started with Screw. And uh, he knew them, and I was able to get in the building with him and play some of my music, and I was given the opportunity once Point Blank heard my music. So, Point Blank hears your music, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Did you, did you, let me ask, let me phrase it this way. Did you have your light bulb, we call it a hell of high water moment. Like, what was the moment where you said, you know what, I'm producing music one way or the other, like, you know, whatever it takes, this is what I'm going to do. Does that happen before or after? It happened before. And the reason it happened, I was on a run for 10 years. So I got caught bringing some drugs back in from Houston to Louisiana, and I got caught on I-10 going back into Louisiana, so I couldn't go back to Louisiana. They had my driver's license, knew where I live. Feds, ATF came to my house, so I had to stay in Houston. And that was, and my only, the only chance I had was music, pretty much. You know, I, I was, I ran from the cops. I was in this field, which later I figured, I had uh, found out that it was an alligator farm. Oh, wow. Where I was at. Wow. It was in Anahuac uh, County. And I was out there sitting in the middle of this alligator form and I'm sitting there and I'm praying and I'm like, God, if you get me out of this, I swear I'm not going back. And I walked out of it. My friend came and picked me up. I never looked at drugs again. And I just stayed on, on task. And about a few months after that, I ran into Point Blank. And then a few months after that, I was signed to Rebel Up. So, you know, you, we talked a little bit about you having a, a little bit of a, you know, piano background, being influenced from the church. Um, you found yourself kind of on the wrong side of the law, doing things just to hustle, make ends meet. We, we've all heard that, that song and dance and that story before. So you've had this hell or high water moment in the, the swamps of, uh, of Louisiana in a field. Um, you're praying to God saying, okay, you give me, get me out of this. You know, I promise I'll never go back. But when did you actually learn how to start producing tracks? I learned in, in, in uh, Louisiana with my friends. You know, they had uh, brought me a keyboard. 
and I was always a musician, so I was able to sit in the house and study it and go over things. I made all our tracks, so I, I learned the basics while I was in Louisiana, but when I got to Houston and I actually linked in with Rap that's when I really honed in on my, on my craft and really understood exactly what it was I was doing. Were you self-taught or did you actually take any classes? I, I was self-taught. So you, so you're, just, you're at the point now you can just hear whatever, whatever's hit on the keyboard. You know exactly what it is with my ear. Man, I can hear a track and I can listen to it and tell you how fast it is. Really? Yeah. Right now. <laughs> so, so I, I've asked this question before um, in previous podcasts: Is it a talent or a skill? Which it's, is more important? It's equally yoked. You got to have both. You can't be great and not have both attributes. You know what I mean? You can be talented and not have no skill. And if you're talented and you don't have skill, then you're missing something. That's why you got people like Mike Dean that mentored me and different people like that, Dr. Dre. He's talented, but he's skillful too because he knows different things that he needs to know to to push his talent further. It's interesting that you mentioned mentorship. Um, And I think you just mentioned one name. Uh, We can give you a chance to repeat that here in a second. But, uh, you know, how valuable is mentorship in, in your space it's very valuable because you learn that you know you really learn the craftsmanship of whatever it is that you're in when you have people that are pros in what they do you're talking about people like John Beto Eno Joe Mike Dean those are the people that I came off the street on a run sitting in a studio with. and how did you make those relationships from Rapalot Big Chief signed me to his production company and I was able to get around everybody. Scarface is another guy that, that has a heavy influence on my music. Pimp C has a heavy influence on my music too. Did you meet him when he was Scarface or Action? I met, I met him when he was Scarface. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't there for the early part. So what we try to do for all of our visionaries that are tuning in is really provide them a roadmap or a blueprint for, for success. We're talking about mentorship. Now, was this something that you actively were, were seeking? In other words, did you go to all these different producers and say, hey, I want you to mentor me? Or are you just a sponge on the wall saying, look, I'm going to be around and y'all going to have to deal with it. And I'm going to pick up whatever y'all are putting down. I was the sponge. It was never a conversation. Hey, can you show me? Can you mentor me? It was just sitting there watching. When I was in the room with them, I sat and watched. And that's ironic you asked that question. I did an interview earlier today and I was telling people that in order to be great at anything, you have to be able to be a student at it first before you can be a teacher of it. So I was an awesome, incredible student to be able to sit in and, and watch and learn different things. When I first came to rap a lot, I was blowing speakers up. I didn't know how to work the EQs. I didn't know any of that. When I watched Mike Dean, I learned a lot of crafts from him as far as the EQ and stuff and how to you know, filter sounds and different stuff like that. I still use it to this day. So that was some things I learned a lot just watching. So here's a question I've always, I'm always curious about. You've got this dream and this hustle, and you figured out that you know this is a passion of mine, right? Music. Um, it, and a lot of times, we know in whatever walk of life, oftentimes you're not making any money up front, right? You gave up the streets. So how difficult or challenging was it for you to earn an income or a living while still learning to perfect your craft. You know what, I was blessed. It, it was not hard at all for me. I came out the streets broke. And within months, within a month maybe, I say, I got a, I got signed to a WordCamp production, which is Big Chief uh, 
production company, which is the VP of Rap A Lot, and then I signed a publishing deal with Rap A Lot. So I'm broke. They give me a $7,500 check coming out the street. I'm like, oh man, I hit the lottery. Right. <laughs> Most money I've ever seen in my life. So I get signed, and then within probably about six months, I was signed to a 40 track song deal. Within probably about four or five months, I'd ran through those 40 tracks. I had made almost $100,000 in less than a year. Wow. Is it at that point the time to re-up, or do, do you realize what, do you realize your gift at that point, you say, okay, we're, we're, we gotta we gotta renegotiate business terms? I mean, I just kept kept it moving, you know what I mean? I really, Big Chief was, was really handling all my business, and he handled it correctly, you know what I mean? So I had somebody that was a father figure for me, but at the same time, he was guiding me through the business and showing me different things. He gave me my work ethic. He made me stay grounded. So, you know, I mean, dude, I made, I probably made about a half a million dollars in a year and a half in Rebel Life. Just on advancements alone. That's crazy. Yeah. How how blessed do you, when looking back at that now, I mean, we know there's a lot of shark, sharks in the game and in, in, in any industry, right? I mean, how blessed were you to have Big Chiefs take you under his wing and do right by you? Super blessed. Super blessed. He let, he really taught me the chain of business. A lot of people, I, I got a lot of flack when I worked with Big Chief, you know what I mean? Because he's part of Rap Lot. He took 20%. He was like, oh, that's too much. He's messing up. He's doing this. He's doing that. But it was the position that he put me in that was worth that 20%. You paid your dues. It wasn't, just, it wasn't even paying dues. It was, just, you know what? I'm paying for this work. So that 20% he was taking, that 80% that I was getting, happy to, you're happy to have I'm good. Deal. I'm good. He taught me that, and I use that to this day. That's why when I deal with people, I want them to get paid. BC witnessed that this year. When I locked in a deal, I could have got it for less percentages, but I didn't want it because I want somebody to be invested into what I'm doing as much as I am. So I learned all of that under the two to rap line. Cuff, you mentioned something. I'm going to ask you, Mr. Lee. Um, like you said, there's a, lot, there's a lot of sharks, and we hear horror stories all the time as far as the music industry goes, people's business not being correct. They put a lot of work in, and then when it comes time for the actual business and the contracts we looked at, like they're, they're getting raked over the coals. For anybody who's listening to this episode now, what is a, a, a tip that, or a piece of advice, I should say, that you would give anybody when it comes to contracts and looking over their business and making sure that whoever they deem their mentor is actually doing right by them? You just have to do business. You can't be in it for the fame. You can't be in it for the notoriety. You can't be in it for a piece and chain. All of that does not matter. The business has to be done first because at the end of the day, if you position yourself right, whether you sell 10,000 copies or 100,000 copies, it's about how you receive the money. That's going to make the difference. That's why you hear the horror stories about people that are platinum artists and they crying, oh, I got a 60-40 deal, or I got a 70-30, a, a and it's the other way around, and I want to renegotiate my contract, and you know you signed it. When I signed my publishing deal with Rap-A-Lot, I gave my publishing away. They owned it. But that was my keys to get in the door to own my own publishing as I do right now. So I understand the protocol of it. If you, My thing is, if you sign a bad contract, there's always good things in a bad contract that work in your favor too. And you have to honor an agreement that you agreed to be in and take a, and learn a lesson from it and regroup after you get out of it or if you're gonna make 
that if you want to make that move to, to change the terms of it, do it in a very professional and proper way because at the end of the day, you actually agreed to sign that paperwork. So you committed to that agreement. You weren't forced into it. So with that said, looking back on how your business was conducted when you first started to how business is conducted now in the music industry, has anything changed or is it still the same game that's being played? No, it's changed. It's changed tremendously because everybody thinks that the streaming is good now and hey, I'm doing this and I'm doing numbers. I just did 10,000 streams over here and I did 100,000 over there, but that's peanuts compared to what I was making back then. Now the record labels are in bed with these streaming companies and they're making all of this money and everybody's fighting for positions on the streaming sites and not and losing focus of selling their songs and their and you know and their music to the consumers. They just want the streams. But you're working a hundred times more to get the same type of money. I would rather take five thousand record sales than take a million streams any day. Is the profit margin bigger? Super big way bigger so educate the people that are out there that aren't familiar with music and especially the the, the business side of music why would you take 5,000 uh, records over a million downloads here's the difference in it. I'm gonna break it down even lower than that if I sell a thousand copies of, a, of, a, of, a, of my album right now I will make ten thousand dollars if I get a thousand streams on my album I will make seven dollars. It's a very big gap in that. It's a very, very big gap in that. So it's like owning masters. It's it's an incredible thing to own your masters, but they they are being incredibly devalued because nobody's paying attention to the people that are getting these membership fees from consumers to listen to your music. And there's no anti-ups on artists that are higher tier or whatever. They're not getting a whole lot of, you know, special type of situations. And they might get a placement here and there and Spotify whoever may pay them for promotions of their site and they might give them a check for this and that, but they're not going to ever break off none of the membership money. Now, is that more of a concern from the artist's perspective of, hey, I'll never be known globally? You know, I may sell 5,000 records and make 10 stacks, but I, I did a million, you know, downloads, but I'm more well-known across the globe because I've got a million downloads on this record. I mean, being well-known and putting your putting yourself in a situation where you're working at, working at something, whether it's 10 years, 20 years, and if you think of the dynamics of that and you put your time and dedication into something for over 10 years, and you don't have anything to show for it after that. The fame. But do you think that's why they're they're going through the streaming route? Versus, I think they're going through it because they they have not experienced what it feel like to get a check that is that big for less, and they don't understand that part. That's why people jump at the opportunities and say, "Oh my God, I'm gonna sign this record deal with this guy." Oh man, we celebrate such such just sign this. He's got a piece of chain on. Got your bust down Rolex on, and all of this kind of stuff. But we're not really learning. The dynamics of the stuff that we're doing, even to, down to the jewelry that we wear. When you wear a bust-down Rolex, that Rolex is zero good, no good. You know why it's no good? Because the sides of the watch, the watch is waterproof. 
When they drill into the houses of the side of those watches, they lose all value. You can't take it to a Rolex dealer to get it cleaned or any of that because they're not going to honor it. And if you try to sell it to a Rolex dealer, they're not going to buy it because the watch is totally ruined. In their, in their mind, so you turn it into a piece of junk. That's it. That's what it is. It's like drilling a million holes in the Maybach bins and putting rhinestones in it and you thinking that it's up is is making it more cosmo, but it's not. So with that being said, and this speaks to the, the mindset of the artist, they've been they've been trained to look for to, to do those things, like you said, no one's no one's educated them on that. Can you talk about the difference between working with an artist when you first got started and when you were coming up versus the the way you have to work with artists now? It's like Back then, it was like cooking a roast in the oven. You marinate it overnight, and you cook it slow, and you make sure that it's tender and everything. Now, it's like just throwing it in the microwave. The artists are working extra harder now because they can't make it dropping one or two albums a year because the, the, the records are getting streamed at a higher margin, but the money and the payout is so much less. It's a hundred times less. Yeah. So it's like, it's crunch time for a lot of artists now. If they're not in a position financially already where they could just say, I'm not gonna do five or six albums a year. So you've been in the game for a long time. Uh, obviously very well known. You've seen music go through a lot of different transitions, a lot of different cycles, even different um, styles within the same genre of music. Um, you've been able to actually evolve while maintaining your, your musical integrity and your what we like to call your constitution um you know how have you been able to do that and maintain true to who you are because i'm a brand when people hear my music my name is behind it so when they they are listening for a certain type of feel when they hear my music i've always learned and understood that the best thing that i can do is be me if i try to start making tracks like mike will then i'm gonna lose who i am if I run after every trend, I'm always going to be a step behind the other person because I'm not innovative anymore. And I think a lot of people lose focus of that and not understanding that music is something that that a person will grab a hold of forever. You don't have to you don't have to chase a trend and be part of a trend in order to be relevant. What type of mindset do artists need to have nowadays? They need to be creative and stick out. Right, especially in the hip hop genre, there's so many people in it now, and our music, our our music has become a gateway for a lot of people to be legitimate now too. So it's flooded with different people just saying whatever, doing whatever. The best thing that you can be is creative. If you stick out and you are the best person that you can be, and you have a story that's unlike anybody else, and you can touch people with it they're gonna relate to it but if it sounds like everybody else's shit and you're saying the same thing that everybody else is saying then it's just like throwing dice in the wall you don't know what number's gonna pop out <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that when an artist comes to you and like you just said in regards to being being creative and standing out to to expound upon that what are the elements that you are looking for you say you know what i'm gonna mess with that because it's it's of today's time, but it's original. And I know exactly what you're saying. Like we are oversaturated with a certain type of music now. So what are the elements that you're looking for when you say, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll work with you because I see something. I'll be looking for a person to be creative. I'm looking for a person that's not gonna yes man me to death and gonna challenge me musically also so that we can make the best records that we can make. 
that's how it was when I was working. When I first met Nipsey Hussle, and he did the first Blue Laces record, that man wrote on one verse for five or six days. And I didn't even hear the verse. When I left New York, we had a condo in New York for like two weeks. I didn't hear Blue Laces finished for almost two months. But when it was done, it was a masterpiece. And you know what I mean? When you're creating something, you can't dumb it down and you can't, you have to be authentic. That's why Nipsey Hussle worked. That's why J. Cole worked. That's why Kendrick Lamar works. Eminem works. And other people like them work. Slim Thug, same way. He works that way because when you hear his record, it's him. When you hear Scarface, it's Scarface. It's not Scarface sounding like somebody that's 20 years old. Right. And I, and I love that. We talked about, you know, your inner constitution and sticking to that. Um, I'm curious, and I've got two questions for you here. Do you call today's music real music coming from the old school? I do. I do. When you see people like the South Twins, when you see people like, um, I mean, even when you look at Trap Bar Freddy, you look at what Yellow Beezy's done. When you hear their music, it's theirs. You know what I mean? When I was growing up, Two Live Crew, when I was playing Two Live Crew in NWA, my, my parents were like, man, cut that junk out. There ain't no music. Yeah. Everybody has their moments and everybody has their era. And you know what I mean? When people say, oh, it's mumble rap, or oh, it's, it's this, it's that, they're not understanding that that's our, we we're in a new era. Yeah, that's You can't are. drag a person backwards and say, I'm going to bring back the 90s. Are these youngs, I try to put youngs on the boom pap beat, especially if they're from the South. They're not trying to hear that. They're not familiar with it at all. No. So you talked about Nipsey Hussle, Nipsey Hussle, rest in peace. Um, and you worked with hundreds of talented artists throughout your 20-year career, 20-plus year career. What's it like, you know, being in the studio with, with um, talent of that caliber? It's inspiring. It's nothing like being able to be in a studio with people that will allow you to leave out of the studio with something that you didn't have when you came in there. That's how I felt when I worked in the studio with Ludacris. That's how I felt when I was in the studio with Scarface over and over. That's the same way I felt with Bobby Sessions when I worked with him. Nipsey Hussle, of course, when I worked with him, I always took something from it. Do or Die was the same way they challenged. If you listen to the records I did with Do or Die, there's no other production from me that you would hear that I did with them that is on somebody else's record because it was a sound that I made for them. And that's the thing about it. You have to create something that's in the lane of the person that you're working with. Correct me if I'm wrong. So what I'm hearing is, and we already know this based upon your resume, but you're a true craftsman at this point. Are you one of those people who, you know, hey, I went to the studio on Monday night and I don't come out till, you know, Wednesday afternoon. You don't even know what time, what part of the day it is. Are you one of those people? No. Were you at one point? No. Really? No. You believe in respites? No, I'm just efficient. I make, I make, <laughs> I make ten tracks a day still. Man. I make about fifty tracks a, a, in five days. Every day. So when you go into the studio, so let's 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 say it's it's Tuesday at ten o'clock in the morning. Have you already made a mental plan in regards to how you're going to start crafting music, or do you walk in and it just come to you? It's a spirit that come to me. There's no way I can plan it. You know, I mean? whatever my mind does when I touch the keys. That's what's going to come out if I'm pissed off about something. Anger's going to be in there. If I'm happy, happiness is coming out. And that's a conversation I used to have. Like, when I used to work in the studio with Scarface, I would ask him, how you doing today, bro? 
what, what's on your mind, what you went through. I want to know what his mindset is so I can paint a canvas for him that day. to visualize in that music when I'm working with him. So it becomes an instant reflection of where you are in that moment and Absolutely. really seizing that moment. Absolutely. How, how difficult is it? Maybe difficult is not the right word, but how are you able to put yourself in that frame, in that framework? It's a vibe. I, I'm a music producer, so I make my tracks on the spot. And I could, and I don't know if it's just a gift or what it is, but I could feel energy from people when I'm around them. And I know where to go. When I, when I make them move, then I know I'm heading in the right direction. It's all frequencies, though. You know, not to sound weird or anything. No, I believe in that. You know, your body's full of fluid. So the frequencies that you feed to it is going to make you move one way or the other. Either it's going to bring you down or it's going to bring you up. So don't feel weird. So one thing about the Vision Lab podcast, we don't answer anybody. You can say whatever the hell you want to say. Um, you are truly gifted. So you don't have to uh, feel, for lack of a better word, ashamed or weird. Not, yeah. No, this is what you are. This is who, this is who you, this is what you do. Yeah. So by all means, feel free to, to say how you want to say it. Um, as we push the ball forward, um, what is it like to be... I know we've touched on it earlier, right? But to be revered in such a sense that you are now, and when you meet a new artist, do you lay ground rules down for them, or are you looking for somebody like you said earlier who is going to challenge you and not quote unquote, you know, take a knee when they come into the room with you? I just look for the creativity. I just look for for the creativity. Period. You know, I I could take what other people look as look at as an ugly duckling and find a swan in it, but it's all about craftsmanship. When you're doing music, it's like molding, like you got a sculpture, like you're molding a sculpture. You know, with music, that's what it is. And I'm assuming, because we talked about energy, uh, you know, just now, but if the energy is not there from the artist, are you divorcing yourself of that situation? Oh, absolutely. I was going to say, do you just stop the session and say, look, step outside, go figure it out? Like, what do you do? I, some The most effective thing that I do is when I, when I see an artist trying to find themselves and I'm trying to lead them and they're not following I would leave the room. Because sometimes I could be intimidated just by being in there. So I've learned how to back up, give them space, try to let them figure it out, and then come back after they've done what they've done, and I critique them and say, hey, look, try it this, this way. And once I give instructions and they see what it is that they were doing that was wrong, then they find out, okay, I know how to move. And I talked about that. I made a post this morning about that. You know, in order to change the person's mindset, you can't shame and, and you know, demean them. You have to teach them out of the mindset. So, you know, I've learned that over the years. As we uh, we continue to speak with with the great Mr. Lee here, allow me to to, to take care of the people who take care of us, please. Uh, Mr. Robert Garcia and the family at Farmers Insurance in, in Lucas slash Allen, Texas. Thank you so much for your support. Um, Edwina Brown and the entire family uh, here at Blown Smoke Cigar Lounge, where we're actually recording this episode. The address is 215 West Kent Wisdom Road. Um, if you are anywhere here on the southern side of the Metroplex, make sure you get to Blown Smoke Cigar Lounge. Um, the the good guys of Definition Cigars. You guys keep making these amazing products and putting pressure on everybody here in the industry. I'm personally right now smoking Prolific, my personal favorite. And I'm, I actually tried something new today, man. I went to the Blueberry. 
So what do you think? I like it. I mean, they, like you said, they, they never make a bad product. So Absolutely. if you like flavored cigars, this is something that, they, that they're diving into. I know that they've got a mocha flavor and a, and a blueberry flavor. I believe there's one more. Uh, peach. Yeah. And a peach. There's a raspberry as well, and I'm missing one. It'll come to me as we so, finish this interview. For all the ladies that are tuning in, if you like a flavored stick, holler at our, our guys over at DC. They got amazing uh, flavored cigars. And last but not least, our newest sponsor, Class A Vodka. Crystal and Tim, thank you so much for uh, for, for your support. We look forward to uh, our partnership, and, uh, and we can't wait to see what the future brings. Great product. Absolutely. Um, Mr. Lee. Right before we turned these microphones on, you know, we were we were chopping it up or whatnot, and and you you talked about a lifestyle change that you mm-hmm. recently made. Can you talk about that a little bit? I'm a type two diabetic. I've been a type two diabetic for about 13 years, and I just I was off and on trying to change, but my mindset wasn't ready. So within the last 90 days, I've committed to changing my lifestyle, and I've actually reversed my diagnosis. I'm no longer dealing with medication for diabetes my numbers numbers are normal i've just changed the way i eat i exercise more so you know just made a a total transformation let's talk about that because that's that's really big um obviously in the african-american community diabetes is unfortunately very prevalent um and i know mo this speaks near and dear to you as well um let me i want to actually go in and ask why did it take so long for you to change because I think because of the way that I was raised, number one, and taught how to eat is something that I carried my entire life. You know, a, a three-course meal to us is eating rice, beans. You have, of course you have protein with the meat and bread, and then you have something sweet to drink behind that. So all I've, out of all the stuff that I just named, sugary drinks is bad, rice is bad, beans are carbs. That's not good. Bread is not good. So when you eating all of that over and over again, I wasn't born a diabetic, but I ate myself to being a diabetic. Right. Right. And so I had to reprogram the way that I was taught how to eat and figure out a different lifestyle. Why do you think it's so um, prevalent in our community um, that we don't take care of our ourselves through eating? Well. The biggest problem is bad food is incredibly convenient and it's cheap. Right. To eat healthy, if I wanted to eat a healthy burger that's wrapped in lettuce, that burger would cost me by itself would be like ten bucks. Yeah, easy. But I can go to McDonald's and get a whole meal for three dollars and fifty cents. So you know, you do the math, you're gonna go get that. You're gonna spend that five, six dollars and get a whole meal. Right. So you know, I mean, that has a lot to do with it. This has a lot with being disciplined and, and understanding that eating out, especially at fast food places, they are not. It's not good. You just said something as far as discipline. You don't work a regular nine to five job. Like your day starts when you decide it's going to start. Your day ends when you decide it's going to end. So how hard is it to maintain some level of discipline when it comes to your diet and exercise, given given your 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 work life? You just have to really understand your body and understand your craves to figure out how to diffuse the behavior that you had. Like when I used to wake up in the morning, I would eat oatmeal, eggs, bacon, whatever. Now I take a protein shake infused with with an espresso shot and a protein shake 
and the espresso tastes like a Starbucks drink for me, so it's sweet, but it's no sugar in it. So when I drink that, it fills me up, number one, and number two, it diffuses my want to, to eat sugar, so I don't have that need for it. You also, you know, we're talking about discipline, um, and I'm a fervent believer of, of being disciplined um, in any practice, right? Um, a part of that also is a mindset shift mm-hmm. that you that had to take place, like you said, about 90 days ago or so. Um, what was it that shifted your mind, and what can you tell our visionaries that are tuning in as an easy way that they can, you know, ease into a better and more healthier lifestyle? The biggest thing that I can tell a person, from my experience, I've been in an industry and working for over 20 plus years. The, the biggest travesty that I see within myself is I'm gonna work all these years, make all this money that I'm making, and then have, have my children push me around or service me because I decided that I wanted to eat something that was bad and destroy my body when I know that I'm battling a disease that attacks my heart, my kidneys, my amenities, like my hands and feet and all of that. So when I started looking at that, at that issue and I looked at my children and I was looking forward to my future and I'm about to approach 50, I'm like, hey, you know what? I got to stop this right now before it goes too far and I won't be able to stop it. Now, are you just more of a plant-based diet at this point? No, I eat a lot of protein still. I eat a lot of greens and I eat uh, berries like strawberries and blackberries. I don't eat no apples, no oranges, nothing like that that has high sugars, bananas or carbs. I don't eat any of that. No grains, no rice, no no uh, flour products, no nothing. I've learned different ways to compensate for that, like using almond flour or coconut flour. My wife, fortunate enough for me, is super crazy smart when it comes to that kind of stuff. She's the one that discovered the keto diet and turned me on to it and kind of helped me regain myself and restructure the way that I eat. So let me switch gears for a second. And I want to talk about balance. So obviously, you know, you're no stranger to the studio, but I'm wondering when do, do you ever shut it off? Like your production, the production side of your brain, the, 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 the keyboard player, like do you ever shut that off or is that just constantly going all the time? All the time. I can be making a beat sleep. I can hear a vibe in my sleep. And my son, is, I got my one of my twins and my older son are the same way. They can hear music and you'll, you'll catch me sometime, I'll be bobbing my head and there's nothing playing. <laughs> but the music is always constantly moving in my body. You know what I mean? That's just, that's part of my DNA. Do you read? No. When you wake up in the morning, um, do you do any type of meditation, affirmations, journaling, anything to just set your spirit? No, I don't do any of that. I think all of my meditation, everything comes out in my music. That is and, your meditation. Uh, that's that's where it's at. And he'll tell you, I'm the type of person, if I say something and if I see it and I want it, if I speak on something that I want it, Believe me, in about six months or less, you will see me with it, because I'm gonna get it. You know, what I mean, that's, I'm just a firm believer. If I want something, it's I'm gonna achieve it, no matter what. So we are in a very um, weird time. There's a lot of uh, civil unrest. Um, obviously, we're familiar with what's happened with George Floyd, and then most recently, a couple of weeks ago, uh, what happened with uh, Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta. Um, 
being from Houston, you've been able to actually see Houston come together and really fight uh, social injustice uh, for all minorities, most particularly uh, blacks, right? So what does that mean to you when you look back on your city? It means a lot to me. I think, um, I was just talking about this earlier. I think this generation that we have now, they're not passive like we were. They're more vocal, and I think it has a lot to deal with. They didn't have to experience a lot of it the way we do, so when they, they start to experience it, they're pushing back. Because it, it's not a constant, like, you know, being talked about or this and that, and having to just see it in their face. But when they actually experience it, then it's triggering them in a different way than it's triggering us. What do you think it's going to take to to rid or diminish as much of social injustice, racism, bigotry um, in this country? I don't think that you can never erase it because people, just like we've been taught different things in our, our culture is, you have people that are, are culturally invested in being racist. I think the best way for us to gain control over this is to control what we have and where we are. Until we do that first, then it's no way that we can step outside of a circle that we have and change something when we haven't changed it inside. And what I mean by that, influencing kids to be cops, lawyers, DAs, and stuff like that. It's just not, we're just not, we don't just have talents to be uh, athletes and musicians and entertainers. entertainers or dope dealers or whatever. If a person can sell dope, then they can sell clothes. If a person can sell dope, they can sell shoes. We're born entrepreneurs. But until we actually invest education into our youth and teach them it's okay to be a cop because you can be the cop just like the lady that was just here that can protect our neighborhood and look out for us instead of being a cop that's throwing us in jail instead of being a cop that's beating on us instead of a cop like I was back in the day that had never been in trouble and was put on probation for really something that I really didn't do and it ruined my life when I was able to use music as a key to get out of that box. So to, to even push further on that, you've seen the city of Houston come together and we're watching Atlanta do the same thing. Can you talk about, and, and, and you know, there's no right or wrong answer again, do you feel any particular level of responsibility to do something that can help move the ball forward when it comes to the city being together, race relations, like, do you feel like you hold any particular responsibility to, to do something to help the fight? Yeah, I think I, I think my responsibility is to teach my children and so they can take the energy that I give them and spread it to some other kids, whether they're black, white, green, red, or whatever color they are. Because if, you, if, if, if a person doesn't have the knowledge to understand what type of position they're in, then there's no way that they can manage the position, period. How, how do you see music transcending um, as we know music can transcend any color line right um, how do you see that impact positively affecting the social and civil unrest that we're experiencing I mean it's, it always has for years whether people want to acknowledge it or not that's why you had black performers going through the back doors and, and performing in all white clubs and doing stuff like that our music always has been influenced it's just about when you gain that power, 
it's about doing something with it to rejuvenate the people around you and to teach them once you have that platform. I think a lot of people have that platform and they don't either they don't understand the power that they have or they just don't want the responsibility. For sure. So, you know, we're still dealing five, six months into uh, the pandemic. Um, a couple months ago, you know, the Texas governor opened things up and we started to see a very big spike in the month of June. Here we are in the month of July, still dealing with this. Um, how has the pandemic affected you being able to go about your, your musical uh, lifestyle? Not at all. I'm, I was always a social distance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an introvert, but I don't get out nowhere. So, but I mean, what about the the ability to engage with your artists? I've I've always been a, a, a above the curve. So being on the internet, I've I've always done that. I'm one of the producers that made my money sitting on the couch. Really? I didn't have to fly out and stay away from my family months and months. I had to chase people to to make music for them and get paid. I've been working on the internet. So this just opened up something that I already knew about back in like 2007, 2008. I did an online session over the internet from Dallas with Slim Thug in Houston. And I recorded him and made the track online in 2007, 13 years ago. Mm. So I was already prepared for this type of stuff. What gave you that that foresight? Uh, just really just uh, I'm a tech head. So I'm always in looking for different things and I ran up on a company out of Austin and um, they had this plug-in that was not popular at all it was called vision glass or something like that virtual glasses was called and it was a plug-in that you could put into a DAW which is a digital audio workstation and I was able to use that on their servers and do a session with people outside wherever they were it didn't matter where they were hmm. so I was doing that 13 years ago Okay, so now I want to talk about the process of how you actually cook, right? So, you're you're working with an artist. Is it as as simple as you went to the studio, you made X amount number of beats or tracks, and sent it to the artist and said, "Hey, pick something you like." Does the artist come to you and say, "Hey, I got an idea"? Like, how does that process go? I like to get to the artist. You know what I mean? Because I want to hear their voice. I want to see how they react to the music. I want to see what stimulates them to write, what make them move. You can't do that sound the beat pack. That's what people miss, and that's why you hear so many records that sound familiar to everybody else's record because you're not you're not putting the DNA to the music. So I always like to make music that's gonna that's gonna magnify the timbre of a person's voice and their emotions and everything else. So I, I like to be hands-on so that I can achieve that. A lot of people think, well, if I just do a club record, it's going to be this. If I'm going to do this, it's going to be that. A lot of records that I've had that have been hits or big records have not even touched the club already. But it touched people because it's authentic. You know what I mean? So to that point, can you tell, tell the listeners something that you know, your resume speaks for itself? But what are some of the tracks that you have had your hands on to where when you and the artist knew, once you said, okay, we're done, what are some of the records that you can pinpoint and say, as soon as we wrap this up, like, you knew it was a hit? I mean, obviously... It's going to be fire. Right, yeah, like, you know, Blue Laces 2, obviously, you know, Nipsey Hussle's classic. You've had your hands on... I mean, you're, you're, you're part of the DNA of the city of Houston, the entire rap scene. What are some of the records that you've produced where you knew as soon as y'all saved everything, you were like, that's going to go? Three Kings was one, the Slim Thug, Chunk of the Deuce with uh, Lil Kiki, Get Throw with Bun was one. Um, 
There's so many. That course, large blue, catalog to go through. Of course, the huh? Blue Laces was one. Um, You're Everything with Bombi was another one that I just knew was a record that never got picked. It just got picked up. Um, uh, man, there's so many. Uh, Gangster from Slim Thug was another one. Help Me Please from Zero was one. Man, uh, Break Em All from Paul Wall was another one. Was, you know, you just feel it. You know what it is. With you being so entrenched with Houston's rap scene, are you considered, well, no, you are considered one of the Godfathers. Now, let, let me rephrase the question. When a new artist, there you go, that's, that's, what, that's the tone I'm looking for. When a new artist comes up, does somebody bring them to you, or do you have, are you still plugged into the scene where enough you can say, you know what, I've seen what that young man's doing. I want to work with him. It's, it goes both ways. Some people brought to me, like I'm working with a guy out of Austin that's originally from Longview. His name is Aldi 300. We're dropping a mixtape a month. I reached out to him when I heard him rap. And we've been tied to each other's hip ever since. And I'm developing his sound and different stuff like that. So, I mean, if I, I got an eye and I and the ear to see and hear different things. Like when I discovered Iggy Azalea, she was on MySpace. And she was 16. And I told this girl when she turned 18, she could come and work with me. Because I didn't want to work with her while she was underage and have to go through all of that stuff. And she showed up in, in Houston the day before her birthday. Wow. And I developed her and gave her all the essential tools that she used to this day to be who she is now. So it's a, it's a super exciting time for you. Um, getting ready to drop your last album, 20 Years of Power. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Um, what was the mindset behind creating 20 Years of Power? 20 Years of Power is an album that I've been working on since 2013. I've been working on it for a long time, but that's when the Dr. Dre kicks in for me. I just didn't want to let it go. But it embodies the vibes and everything that I've supplied for Houston for the last 15 to 20 years. I have developed a sound there, like the screwed up hooks. I magnified that. Um, just the, the organ sounds and just the vibe of the music. So my 20-year album, the 20 Years of Power, is an album that reintroduce who I am and let people hear the music that I produce. When they hear my album, they hear all of the records and they, all the sounds that I use for those 20 years in that album. How do you balance doing your album and, and other and, and sticking to and sticking to you know what you're what you're trying to communicate collectively over a long long term uh, career and still managing other people's sound. It's just a vibe. It's easy for me. I mean, once I get in the studio with somebody else, I'm making the music for them. I'm making it for their voice. I'm making it for their vibe. So it's, it's, it's something that I do that I don't focus on doing. It just comes naturally. And while you're producing 20, 20 Years of Power, um, what were some of the things that, that gave you that inspiration to, uh, to put this all on wax? I mean, yeah, it's that, that's that Dr. Dre disease. I mean, you know, yeah, you started yeah. in 2013. Yeah. There's a I lot mean, that's happened. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot that's happened. I mean, like, that's a big time capsule. And I'm just sitting here as we're talking about it. I mean, that obviously took a long time to put together. But I think what you're really asking is speaking, you speaking to the, the intricacies of each and every track. Because I've heard it. Yeah. And anybody listening to it, like you said, it is it is a time capsule. And you can hear you like, this is, this is Houston at its core. Like, there's no mistaking it. It's not, it's not trendy or fat. It's like, no, this is something that anybody associated with Houston music can be proud of. 
And so to finish the question, like how do you how did you go about putting the intricacies into that piece of into that body of work? I mean, it was just an intimate situation for me. You know, it was me. It was everything that my music stands for and what it is. So when I put my soul is in that, that my album is an album that probably never supercharged or anything like that. But it's a record that you can put on 10 years later and still be able to listen to it and it won't sound out of date. Being that it's already seven years old before I ever put it out. So we're about to start landing the plane. One of the questions that we ask everybody on the show, uh, you're at a round table just like the one we're sitting at right now. It's you and there are five other seats at that table. Dead or alive, who are the five other people you want at your table? The only caveat is you can't have Jesus there. Because who wouldn't want to talk to him, obviously? That's too easy. Man. It'd probably be... Scarface definitely be one. That's my favorite rapper of all time. Uh, Tupac is another one. And they all don't have to be music playing. No, no. Um, man, that's tough. That's two. I probably want Barack sitting at the table. Because I feel like he achieved something that... You know, I mean, it was unimaginable. So I would love to tap his his mind and see what was his process to, to even know to get to that part. Um, man, who else? That's three. Two I, more. I would have to have Dr. Dre there. I would definitely have to have Dr. Dre there because Dr. Dre is a big part of me being who I am. And I probably would have to have Jay Prince there too. Definitely. Shout out to Jay Prince. Yeah. Jay Prince, you got an open invite to come on the show. Yes, let's go. Let's make that happen, Jay Prince. Um, I, first of all, I want to say thank you for coming on to the podcast. Um, got a couple more questions, but before we land the plane, real quickly, uh, drop your social media handles for all the visionaries that are tuning in and want to be able to just you know reach out to you. Okay, my uh, social media IG is MrLee713. My Twitter is MrLee713. My Facebook is Producer Mr. Lee. You can reach me at any time. If you inbox me, you will get a response. I respond to every single person. I can attest to that. Every single person. So you contact me, you will get contact back. And before you officially, you know, bring the plane to, to a halt cuff, let me say thank you to, to your media bay, Amber. We appreciate you and, and all the work that you've done to get this all organized. You are much appreciated. We look forward to working with you uh, as the future uh, continues to, to reveal itself to us. Shout out to Amber. A um, couple more quick questions, and then you know uh, we'll, we'll land the plane here. Um, what's the long-term vision for one, Mr. Lee? My long-term vision is to leave a, a, a legacy for my children that is an active legacy, something that they can use when I'm not here. That's my first priority. My second priority is to embody other people with the tools that I have so they can be prosper and they can spread what I've had and the success I have to other people. I want to empower other people the way that I am. Last question of the podcast. Well, I'm sorry. Let me let me do this. Um, how much longer will you be producing? Until I can't do it no more. I don't have a time limit on stopping. So we don't see a retirement in any, anywhere in I the future? I never retire. What, what for? It's just, it, this is who he naturally is. Yeah. So before we land this plane... Um, We've got a, a big announcement. Well, we've already made the announcement about our golf tournament. Rumor has it that you're not too bad out there on the links. No, you know, I'm not too bad at all, man. So August 29th, for all of our visionaries that are tuning in, make sure that you um, sign up, register to become, or register to be 
at our golf tournament. TheVisionLabPodcast.com. Yep. Uh, or you can hit us up on our, our Instagram page at the Vision Lab Podcast. Um, you know, shoot us a DM. Um, there's links to on our Facebook page where you can actually register for the Golf Classic. So, um, love to have you out there. Uh, you got a handicap? No. Just get out there and swing. Get out there and get to Can it. you go? Yeah. Okay. We're gonna see. Are we gonna see you at the golf tournament? Absolutely. Bet. Bet. So Put all the calendar, Amber. Yep. All all visionaries that are listening, you want to get a chance to shake. Uh, Mr. Lee's hand, make sure you guys come out. So, final question of the of the episode. What advice would Mr. Lee be giving himself from five years ago? Man, probably not spend so much money on, <laughs> on frivolous things. I was the buzz down king when I was in my 20s. So, if I could have learned the invest, how to invest money and the power of having credit and all of that when I was younger... I would tell my younger self that, hey, man, make sure that you focus on, make sure you have good credit and invest into more things and have assets and other things that depreciate and not become liabilities. Great advice, sound advice. Now, we're going to fast forward the clock five years from now, so we're going to make it a little bit older, so forgive us. Um, what advice would the older Mr. Lee be giving himself today? Be more self-aware about yourself before you be self-aware about other people. Hmm. Great advice. Great advice. So again, thank you, Mr. Lee, for joining us here uh, on the podcast. Again, to all of our visionaries that are listening, remember, each one of our guests are going to be dropping nuggets of wisdom on the trail of life. It's really up to you to pick them up. Ladies and gentlemen, the voice you've been listening to is the one and only Mr. Lee. My name is Ryan Mosley. He is Ryan Cuffey, and we will see you guys next week on another great episode of the Vision Lab podcast. Blessings. Blessings.